0: Dear Heavenly Father, we are mindful of the time of year, we're mindful, Father, of uh, the opportunities that come with this time of year. Um, We come to study and we come to be part of the body because uh, these are times of preparation for us, times in which we feel ourselves growing, our mind being transformed into the likeness of Christ, knowing things that we wouldn't have known otherwise, changing our thinking, changing our our way of of viewing the world and of our own future. But those things, Father, are a means to an end. I keep reminding myself that. I hope it's the same on all hearts here, Father, that we are training up uh, like an army that does no good if it does nothing but train. Uh, At some point, Father, it's time to put that army to work. And we ask, Lord, that perhaps in this season, when others are thinking about eternal matters or about Christmas in general, Lord, I pray that you'd use us in some way, that we might introduce someone to the knowledge of who you are to the study of your word to a community that cares about these things uh, let us learn something tonight father that might spark that conversation perhaps it might change our attitude toward israel or towards somebody we know who is jewish perhaps that would open a door for conversation uh, but in any way you choose to father we ask that you take what we learn and use it tonight remind us of your power and your your goodness remind us father of what a holy god expects from those who he has died To make holy, so that we might understand what's upon us as an expectation for living out our faith. All of these things, Father, impress upon us as only you can by your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, welcome to the 25th chapter of Ezekiel, the second half of the book of Ezekiel, and if you're counting, the third major division of this book. As a quick review, up through chapter 24, we've been following the circumstances of a prophet named Ezekiel, living in exile in Babylon with his fellow Jews. He joined them after the second invasion by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, who conquered Judah and the city of Jerusalem. And he's already been in the land now for quite a few number of years, and in that time he's been prophesying to the rest of the exiles who are there with him. And his message in that time, as you know from all the chapters we've studied up to this point, is one of unrelenting judgment. That the Lord directed Israel to tell the nation over and over again that they were going to suffer a great destruction, a great defeat in this coming final third invasion of Nebuchadnezzar. The nation's centuries of misdeeds have now come home to roost. And the Lord's about to pour out on His people the wrath that He has warned them was coming. And it's going to come in the form of this final destructive siege of the city of Jerusalem. Uh, That's a historical event. It's an event of of great significance to the Jewish people. It's certainly one of great significance to this generation of Ezekiel's day. But that generation didn't heed the warnings that might have given them an opportunity to at least avoid the worst of that calamity. They heard all that Ezekiel was saying and all that Jeremiah was saying and all that Isaiah was saying before them and, and even before that. And they refused to accept what they were told. They ignored their prophets, and particularly in Ezekiel's case, they have ignored him, they have mocked him, they have given excuses for the things that he said were coming, they've dismissed his warnings, and now the time has passed to the point that he has spent a decade, just under a decade, with these people in exile warning them. And after almost ten years... Finally, the date of judgment has come for the city of Jerusalem. That's how long it took to get to the third invasion. And as the battle commenced, Ezekiel narrated the sequence of those events in real time to the exiles who were in Babylon. So as the Babylonian army advanced on the city some 500 miles west of the exiles, there's Ezekiel telling them, exactly how it's coming about and that it had arrived on that given day he was actually telling them of it on the day that it started that's certainly faster than the news could have made it there that was january 15th 588 bc and that siege went on for three years it did not end until january 8th of 585 bc when the babylonians finally got through the wall and conquered the city and it's during that, those three years of siege that the people of Israel suffered unimaginably under a blockade. And when the city finally did fall for the final time, all those remaining Jews were either killed or enslaved Israel, Israel's enemies around it, celebrating as it happened. Now, for anyone who witnessed those events, the end of the nation in that time seemed at hand. It looked as if God had forsaken his people and that Israel was literally being wiped off the map who could recover from such a devastating defeat they thought how could Israel survive how could the people of Israel survive how could they ever regain their land under these circumstances certainly that's what Israel's enemies thought and many of the exiles probably believe that as well now as you read the book of Ezekiel and you reach the end of chapter 24 which is what we did last time You're left wondering on the fate of the nation. That's how the book sets you up as a reader. Now, of course, we know how the story ends. We have more than just this book in front of us, so we're not feeling that quite so much, perhaps. But that's the intent. The prophet has set up the prospect that Israel is at an end, that they have fallen into the hands of an angry God, and this is the end of them. And yet, at the same time, he's been alluding to us at points along the way of a future glory, of something more that's coming, that there is something further planned for this nation because of the covenants. So that leaves us with a question. If you play along with this, if you're thinking only about this book for a moment, as you hit chapter 25, you're wondering, which will it be, devastation or glory? And as it turns out, the answer is both. Devastation, then glory, as God has planned it. But because the battle lasts three years... The prophet spends time in the middle middle of that three-year period speaking additional prophecies to Israel concerning other events because the ones that he's already spoken about are underway and they haven't played out completely yet. So in the meantime, he uses this time to prophesy against the enemies of Israel that have mocked the destruction that has come upon them because of their disobedience. Now that's the section we start now. That section runs from chapter 25 through chapter 32. And it's a bridge, if you will, between the messages of judgment that we've been talking about all this time and what we're all waiting for, which are the visions of glory in the kingdom. That's where we pick up at chapter 33. But between them, we have this little segue, and it answers a fundamental question for the Jewish people, particularly those who are in exile. How can God deal with his own people in a way that he's doing, in these harsh ways, while leaving Israel's enemies untouched in the middle of it all? You know, it seems reversed to what they would have expected under the circumstances. So to fill the time between the beginning and the end of Israel's destruction, Ezekiel spends time reassuring the exiles and all of Israel that the enemies of Israel will not escape judgment either. And as the Lord is at work enforcing his destruction on, or bringing his destruction on Israel in enforcement of their covenant, well, he's also going to be fulfilling another covenant, that is the one to Abraham, specifically in Genesis twelve three, in which he said, those who curse Israel will be cursed. So there is still that aspect of faithfulness that will also be demonstrated. In fact, if you go to the law itself, now remember, the law and the covenant of law is the one that's putting Israel under this period of judgment. But the law that, or the covenant that predated that, the one that is aligned aside it, Paul says, the Abrahamic covenant, that covenant had no preconditions and it had no stipulations on Israel. It was a suzerainty covenant. And that covenant said that anyone who cursed Israel would be cursed, anyone who blessed Israel would be blessed. The law came along later, and the law itself promises that God would bring Israel out of exile, into glory, and at the same time move against Israel's enemies. We read this in Deuteronomy 30, verse 4. He says, if your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you, and the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. So, in that passage, and there's others I could quote you that give you similar things, but in that passage the Lord connects three events in his plan for israel such that when they happen they will all happen and the events are these first the nation will be regathered in her land that's not describing the start of it that's describing the end of it it's a process that gets all of israel back in her land but once all israel is in her land when the last living jew is in her land then the other two will also be true The other two are, secondly, that the entire nation of Israel will, for the very first time, have hearts that perfectly obey the Lord. And thirdly, the nation will live in peace and prosperity, having seen all its enemies conquered, as God promised. So all of those things happen at a point in time, and as such, they all collectively bring God's promises to Israel into fulfillment. So that's what Israel's been waiting for, and we collectively refer to that period as the kingdom. So when the kingdom arrives on earth, Israel will be in its land, fully obedient, glorified in other words, and without enemies. That's what Israel's waiting for. And in the Bible overall, there are 11 nations or people groups who are listed as enemies of Israel by God, who will suffer the judgments that we just talked about, this idea that God will defeat them on behalf of Israel. Those nations are... And again, if you take notes and don't get this down quickly enough, my notes are always online to download later. These nations are Ammon, Moab, Edom, Philistia, Tyre, Sidon, Egypt, Damascus, Babylon, Ethiopia, and Assyria. All of those nations are mentioned in the Scripture somewhere. All of them are mentioned in connection with judgment, being judged by God for their opposition to God's people. You'll notice all of those nations are geographically located near israel only one of them is not physically uh geographically connected that's ethiopia but they're effectively connected because it's a short hop across the water relatively speaking across the mediterranean to get there and that's a good rule by the way the only the the nations of the earth that have any direct relevance to israel's existence are mentioned in scripture because every other nation outside that group is irrelevant you're only relevant in relationship to israel And these are the only nations that have a relevance, scripturally, to Israel. So Ezekiel speaks against six of these eleven that I named. The rest are covered by other major prophets like Isaiah, or Jeremiah, or Daniel, or by minor prophets. In fact, all the prophets, if you take all the prophets of the Bible that we have, all major and minor prophets, only one of them, Hosea, says nothing about Israel's enemies. So everywhere you go in the others, you'll find at least some reference somewhere to one or more of those nations or peoples being judged by God. So it's a major theme of the Old Testament that God will hold those enemies of Israel accountable in a day to come. Some of that accountability comes now at various points in history, now in this age. But some of it waits for the kingdom itself. We'll look at some of that tonight. So back to Ezekiel. Ezekiel and Jeremiah, who was his contemporary, if you remember, Jeremiah was in Jerusalem, Ezekiel was in exile. They each prophesy against seven of these 11 enemies. They each give a different seven. That makes some sense when you think about it, because to the exiles, the thought that God would leave any of his enemies untouched was uh, uh, completely unreasonable to them. And seven being the number of completeness, or 100%, you might say. That's a way of indicating that by listing seven, he's saying he's going to judge 100% of Israel's enemies. But Ezekiel's treatment of Israel's enemies does differ from the way other prophets deal with them. First, Ezekiel doesn't speak a prophecy against the most obvious enemy of his day. The seven he covers does not include Babylon, which would be surprising. On the other hand, perhaps it was meant to protect God's people because speaking a prophecy of judgment against Babylon while in captivity in Babylon might have been dangerous for the exiles. It may have been God protecting them from raising any attention among their captors. Secondly, Ezekiel doesn't mention any opportunity for future repentance and redemption for any of the people that he speaks about in his prophecies. But we will see from other scripture that that's not the case, in in some of them anyway, that there are people saved out of these nations for the kingdom. Uh, We'll get to that in a minute. So in the first chapter of the ones we're covering now, starting tonight in chapter 25, the Lord hands out judgment to four of the seven. So we get through four of the seven tonight which sounds impressive, but it's all one chapter. So we go through Ammon, Moab, Edom, and Philistia, mentioned in that order, which if you were to look at them on a map, like the one I gave you, it's a clockwise pattern around Israel proceeding from east to west. The remaining three nations, Tyre, Sidon, and Egypt, the other three that that Ezekiel covers, they'll all get substantially more coverage in the chapters that follow, and so we'll be looking at them with some extended time. The difference in treatment between the four tonight and the three that are coming, it generally, generally reflects the importance of each of these enemies in corrupting Israel. Not in their power, not in their military might, not in their conquest, but in the effect of their culture to compromise Israel's walk in keeping with the covenant. All right. So the corruption of the Egyptians and the corruption of the Philistines, which is Tyre, Sidon, and Egypt they were far more damaging to Israel than the Ammonites or the Moabites were in what they did to the culture. As we've already studied in here, Israel brought idolatry up from Egypt, and so they brought it in right from the Exodus. Okay, you've got your map, uh, you've got your overview. Let's turn to chapter 25. Each of the four nations judged in this chapter will follow a consistent pattern So here's the pattern. I'm not going to repeat it as we go through. You'll see it yourself. But uh, each starts with an introduction, then moves to a charge or an indictment, then moves to a declaration of punishment, and then finally the result of that punishment. And these come in quick succession. In most cases, it's only four verses for each one. Each verse is one of those four steps, so it's very quick. The list begins with Ammon, verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward the sons of Ammon, and prophesy against them, and say to the sons of Ammon, Hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God. Because you said, Aha! Against my sanctuary, when it was profaned, and against the land of Israel, when it was made desolate, and against the house of Judah, when they went into exile. Therefore, behold, I am going to give you to the sons of the east for a possession. And they will set their encampments among you, and make their dwellings among you, They will eat your fruit and drink your milk. I will make Rabbah a pasture for camels and the sons of Ammon a resting place for flocks. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, Because you have clapped your hands and stamped your feet and rejoiced with all the scorn of your soul against the land of Israel, therefore, behold, I have stretched out my hand against you, and I will give you for spoil to the nations. And I will cut you off from the peoples and make you perish from the lands. I will destroy you, thus you will know. That I am the Lord. Now, you may remember uh, going back to chapter 21, Ezekiel gave an earlier oracle in judgment against Ammon when he spoke about the Song of the Sword. And if you don't remember, just page back there, you might remember by just reading it. But that was the chapter that explained how the destruction of the city was not a random act of God's enemies. Rather, it was the conscious choice of God, of Israel's own God, to bring this judgment against his people. They needed to know that. And it was he in that chapter, he describes it as if a sword is falling on them. A huge sword. And at the end of the chapter, he adds this little section at the very end of chapter 21, in which he says that same sword would also be used against Ammon. And that's the only time in all the things we read up through chapter 24, that was the only time in which an enemy of Israel was ever mentioned in any of the oracles that he gave to the nation about their own judgment. You know, otherwise, it's all packed into this one section. So why was Ammon given that little preview? Well, I think it's because Ammon played a part in rejoicing over Israel's fall by plundering the land as the Babylonians were moving out. And that oracle of judgment was added to chapter 21 because the Ammonites had that unique connection to the fall of the city, which was the topic of that chapter. And they were standing in the midst of the city's destruction, picking up the pieces, ransacking it. And so they get the place of first judgment in this list, and they also get that preview. The Lord says that they have been saying, Aha! against the sanctuary of God. You know, that seems like a pretty mild offense. Aha! No, no, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it that way. I was just sort of clearing my throat. <coughs> Aha! No, but you know we know what, it, what what's meant behind that. It's a it's a statement of triumph. It's a statement of of gloating over what they're seeing. Uh, it suggests an opportunity for the Ammonites to gain from Israel's loss. Ah, our opportunity. And so the Lord says, in their desire to profit from Israel's misery, the Lord's going to take away the nation altogether. Now. As we get down, I'm going to stop here just for a second to make a note for something that's coming. As we get to the end of all of these four tonight, you know, there'll come an opportunity for us to talk just briefly about what present-day attitudes toward Israel might mean for someone in light of what happened to these historical nations, right? You have to be careful about over-applying, about stretching your your application too much. But I do think it's worth noting as we get to the end of each of these, just note the the degree of contempt and even the slightest desire or expression of it causes God concern. So we just want to make note, they they were in contempt and delight over the misfortune of the Jewish people. Has anybody here ever shared that feeling at any time? That's an interesting moment of reflection. We'll come back to that. The Lord says, this nation, Ammon, as a result of what they did, will be overrun... By the sons of the east, and that refers to the Babylonians. It does so because we know historically that's how the nation was destroyed. But in general, the sons of the east, any reference to the east relative to Jerusalem is almost always a reference to Babylon. That's especially true in any conversation of end times. And sure enough, as I said, the Babylonian army destroyed the nation in the course of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. In just the normal by-and-by of his conquests, that nation eventually fell to them. To, to the Babylonians. And he says it will be run over by others. Others will take over. And he's referring to the Bedouins. Bedouins moved in to, from Arabia to occupy that area after it had been laid waste by the Babylonian army. In fact, and some of you may know this, the Jordanians in general, who occupy the territory today of what is previously Ammon, Moab, and Edom, they are descended from Bedouins. Jordanians are Bedouin in their background. And they are most likely descended directly from those who took over the land after this judgment. In fact, the capital of Jordan, Amman, is located on the site of ancient Rabbah, which is mentioned here in verse 5. And in the centuries after Israel's captivity, the city of Rabbah lay in ruins because of what Nebuchadnezzar did to it. It was nothing more than pasture. And in these things, the survivors of Ammon and Ezekiel's day were going to be able to say that God is God, that the God of Israel is the true God. That was the point. Because their nation had become spoil for other nations. Alright, right, now there is more to be said about Ammon historically because the nation, though it was destroyed in Ezekiel's time, it does return again. And I don't just mean in the fact that you have a a, a nation of people occupying the land there today. That country is called Jordan. The Bible says Ammon will return. That an Ammonite people will reoccupy this land. The Lord tells us that in Jeremiah. He says he will bring a remnant of Ammonites into the kingdom to occupy this land during that time. Jeremiah 49.3, he says, Wail, O Heshbon, for I has been destroyed. Cry out, O daughters of Rabbah. Gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament, and rush back and forth inside the walls. For Malcolm will go into exile, together with his priests and his princes. That was a, a leader of Ammon. How boastful you are about the valleys. Your valley is flowing away, O backsliding daughter. Who trusts in her treasures, saying, Who will come against me? Behold, I am going to bring terror against you, declares the Lord God of hosts, from all directions around you. And each one of you will be driven out headlong with no one to gather the fugitives together. But afterward, I will restore the fortunes of the sons of Ammon, declares the Lord. That's the only mention we have there in Jeremiah. But he's alluding to this promise that after he's brought this destruction on Ammon, that there will be the fortunes of the Ammonites will be restored. Now, that's a distinct comment. He didn't just say the land will be reoccupied. He said the fortunes of the Ammonites will be restored. And historically, that has never happened yet. He says a similar thing in Jeremiah 46, 25. The Lord of hosts, it says, the God of Israel says, Behold, I am going to punish Ammon of the Thebes and Pharaoh and Egypt, along with her gods and her kings, even Pharaoh and those who trust in him, I shall give them over to the power of those who are seeking their lives, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of his officers. Afterwards, however, it will be inhabited as in the days of old, declares the Lord. And here again, he speaks about both Egypt and Ammon in that passage. Both share this same future. And he says specifically, it will be inhabited as in the days of old. This is again a specific reference to bringing them back to a place they once were. All right, so... There will be this return, a reference to the kingdom in which Israel will live and reign, but yet other nations also occupy that time, and one of them will be Ammon. Alright, moving on to the next enemy. We'll come back to some of this later. Let's come back to the, go on to the next enemy. Moab, Ezekiel 25, 8. Thus says the Lord God, Because Moab and Seir say, Behold, the house of Judah is like all the nations. Therefore, behold, I'm going to deprive the flank of Moab of its cities, of its cities which are on its frontiers, the glory of the Lamb, Beth, Jeshamoth, Baal Meon, and kiriath And I will give it for a possession along with the sons of Ammon to the sons of the east so that the sons of Ammon will not be remembered among the nations. Thus I will execute judgments on Moab and they will know that I am the Lord. There's Moab. Now, again, if you look at your map, the Moabites live directly east of Israel. They were on the other side of the Jordan as well. In present day Jordan, again, Uh, the destiny of of Ammon and Moab are closely linked in Scripture. And you probably knew that, or you certainly would probably know why that's true. You remember they both originated from that incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. And both opposed Israel from the very beginning. Here we see them sharing a similar fate. Their offense, in this case, we're told, is viewing Judah as no more important than any other nation. That was their offense. You notice that? just like all the other nations. Now that hardly seems offensive in our libertarian, ecumenical view of of the world, right? Everyone's equal, right? Or as Orwell said, some are more equal than others. And in this case, the offense they had was in not recognizing that the Lord had set Israel as His nation above all other nations. Here again, how often have we perhaps slipped into the mindset that Israel is just another nation on earth? But God has said, no, that's an offense to him. And in particularly the case for Moab and Ammon, because they knew from their own experience that God's people were unique. These three people groups were the unblessed branches of Abraham's family. So they, better than anyone, recognized that God had been selective in blessing one branch out of Abraham's family, the one he chose, obviously rather than to see it happen just naturally to anyone. That distinction should have been a clear indication to them that Judah would not be just like any other nation, and therefore if they have gone down in this way, it's the evidence of a a wrathful God seeking to bring justice, and that would have been enough for anyone to know not to speak against it. Because he might come after you next, is the idea, right? So as judgment, the Lord takes away the pride of the Moabites, which were their cities, which bordered Israel on the frontier. Beth Jesh Amoth lay in the Jordan Valley. It guarded the eastern ascent to the Medeba Plateau. Um, if you've ever been in this area or seen, I guess, seen something on TV about it, the Jordan River sits at the very center point of a very broad valley that's ringed on both sides or guarded on both sides by mountain range, one in Israel, one in Jordan. And there are plateaus that are created out of that space as you move between the, the two mountain ranges. And there's natural places of ascent if you're moving east to west or west to east. And you put cities in those places, primarily for trade and also for guarding entry into your nation. And they had these cities they were very proud of that guarded their whole nation. Uh, you had Baal meon which stood farther to the east, south into northern Moab, and then Kiriathim, which means, by the way, that word means glory of the land. Uh, That was another northern town on the Medeba Plateau. And it's interesting, in verse 9, the Lord uses the name of the city to mock their pride, saying, He will take the glory of the land, which is the name Kiriathim. So, He's telling them He's going to take what they valued most. So, like Ammon, this prophecy was fulfilled in the time of the exiles by Nebuchadnezzar when he came in and and conquered that general region. They were wiped out, when uh, that time came, and Bedouins took over that land just as they did Ammon. But also like Ammon, this nation too returns, also returns in the kingdom. Jeremiah forty-eight forty-six. Woe to you, Moab! The people of Chermash have perished, for your sons have been taken away captive and your daughters into captivity. Yet I will restore the fortunes of Moab in the latter days, declares the Lord. Thus far the judgments of Moab. So... Again, a promise to restore the fortunes. And then he even goes to the next step and says, in the latter days, just to be clear. And that's also true for Ammon. Because we haven't seen this happen yet. We're still waiting to see it happen. So what people... Let's just stop here. This is a question that's probably true across all of the seven nations. Actually, all of the eleven that you can see in Scripture. But we'll stop and do it here. What nations of people will inhabit these places in the kingdom? In many cases, it will be Jews because these lands are actually within parts of them anyway are actually within the borders of israel in the kingdom Uh, we'll see the kingdom borders defined as we get further into the book of ezekiel now in other cases the lands fall outside the borders of israel in which case the lands will be occupied by gentiles obviously and those gentile believers who occupy these lands in the kingdom may include believers who once lived in the land but you know you have to be careful about that assumption because that's never said anywhere in scripture so you can't assume that where you grew up and lived in this age is where you'll be placed again in the kingdom age and depending on where you did grow up there might be a lot of people who wish for better so who knows and of course the the nature of the world in that day though it's still this planet the kingdom we're talking the thousand year reigns the reign of christ on earth it's still on this planet it's not a new earth but it's a remade one because we know it goes through some tremendous turmoil in the, in the tribulation. So it's a fixer upper when you get done with tribulation. What God does with it after that in preparation for the kingdom, we don't have a clear understanding of. We only know the geography about Israel proper because that's what's described in Ezekiel. We'll get to that. Outside of that, it's just your imagination. It could be very similar to what we have now. It could be very different. So who will be in these particular regions? Perhaps those who live there. Perhaps those who didn't. Perhaps you and I. Just depends on how God chooses to place us. We'll come back to that question in later chapters, because we'll get to geography as a center point of later prophecies in this chapter in this uh, book. All right, the next nation, Edom, the nation that descended from Esau. Verse twelve: Thus says the Lord God, because Edom has acted against the house of Judah by taking vengeance and has incurred grievous guilt and avenged themselves upon them, therefore, thus says the Lord God. I will also stretch out my hand against Edom and cut off man and beast from it. And I will lay it waste from Teman even to Dedan. They will fall by the sword. And I will lay my vengeance on Edom by the hand of my people Israel. And therefore they will act in Edom according to my anger and according to my wrath. Thus they will know my vengeance, declares the Lord God. All right, Edom, on your map, is located southeast of Israel, present-day southern Jordan. Includes the area of Basra, Petra as we know it today. If you traveled there, that's where you were. You were in the land of Edom. It doesn't appeal much if you're there. It's pretty dry and dusty. It doesn't have a lot to commend it. But that's where the Edomites went. They have a long history as enemies of Israel, which if you go technically to their origins, it starts with Esau himself opposing his brother Jacob. So it started right at the top. Later, the nation of Edom joined in battle with the Babylonians in a fight against Judah. Notice in verse 12, Ezekiel says they took vengeance, which is a reference to fighting Israel when it was already down. Amos, one of the minor prophets, he describes it this way. Amos 1.11, he says, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke its punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword, while he stifled his compassion... His anger also tore continually, and he maintained his fury forever. So I will send fire upon Teman, and it will consume the citadels of Basra. So Amos says the Edomites pursued their brothers. Now that's an interesting statement. Brothers. They pursued their brothers with the sword. And that's a reference again to what we just talked about with those of Moab, that the Edomites should have had some sympathy, toward the people of Judah when they saw what they were going through with the Babylonians because they had a blood relationship with those people through Isaac. And that made their treachery all the worse. Now, understand, God saw them as a different people than Israel, but that doesn't mean they don't have some uh, relationship between them that would have expected to be some natural compassion. As God says in Amos one eleven. He says, they stifled their compassion. Just a natural reaction would have been expected. So their sin of pursuing Judah with the sword was more grievous, God says, than the Ammonites or the Moabites, who just merely gloated. So the Lord says, He will cut off all living things from the land, both man and beast. He said that in Ezekiel 25, 13. All things. Now this is a different judgment than what we've seen for the first two, obviously. Because in the case of Ammon and Moab, the nations were destroyed, the people itself ceased to be But then you just had other people move into the land. Bedouins, in this case. But in the case of Edom, nothing is going to inhabit the land again. It will become a desolate wasteland. Now, we know that that judgment is yet to happen because you and I can go to Edom today and visit Batra, or Petra as it's called. So that tells us, and there's certainly animals there, so that tells us that this is a future prophecy. It has not yet been fulfilled. So this is an example of what I said at the outset in which some of these judgments have yet to even be fulfilled. So, when we go to other scripture, we find that this is a punishment that will be handed out against this region in the kingdom. And that is that this land in the kingdom, for the whole thousand years, will be uninhabited. Not man nor beast will occupy this space. The only thing that will inhabit this area of earth are demons. Jeremiah 49.17 says, Edom will become an object of horror... Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss at all its wounds. Like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah with its neighbors, says the Lord, no one will live there, nor will a son of man reside in it. If you look at Jeremiah 49, the whole context of that chapter is speaking of the last days of the end times. So this is part of that. Isaiah 34 gives us the best detail on what to expect. Isaiah thirty-four one talks about how this land will be judged in that coming day. It says, Draw near, O nations, to hear and listen, O peoples. Let the earth and all it contains hear, and the world and all that springs from it. For the Lord's indignation is against all the nations and his wrath against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to slaughter. So their slain will be thrown out and their corpses will give off their stench and the mountains will be drenched with their blood and all the hosts of heaven will wear away and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts also will wither away as a leaf withers from the vine as one withers from the fig tree. I'm setting the context there. That's the context of chapter 34 of, of Isaiah. Clearly, he's speaking about events of the last days, events of the end of the age. And particularly, he's talking about tribulation. And we know that because he says things like, corpses are everywhere, mountains are drenched in blood, the sky is rolled away, the hosts of the sky, and that's a reference to sun, moon, stars, they wither away. All of those are details that confirm we're looking at the timing of judgment that's described in more detail in Revelation. So we're talking here about the last few years of this world's age before the coming of the kingdom, when those terrible judgments are poured out. So that's the context now of of Isaiah 34. Now we go from verse 4 to verse 5. We hear this, For my sword is satiated in heaven. Behold, it shall descend for judgment upon Edom. It's the first one mentioned in this. And upon the people who I have devoted to destruction. Then we've jumped to verse 8. Now we read descriptions of what the land of Edom will be like in that time. Verse 8, he says, For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Its streams will be turned into pitch, its loose earth into brimstone. Its land will become burning pitch, and it will not be quenched night or day. Its smoke will go up forever. From generation to generation it will be desolate. None will pass through it forever and ever. Now, that's a description of the land of Edom in the time of the kingdom. It sounds a lot like a description of hell, doesn't it? And I don't just mean metaphorically. I mean literally. Non-stop burning, unquenched day and night, smoke going up forever, remaining desolate, none passes through it, which is a way of saying none can get out of it. Okay? So that just very much sounds like hell, and yet we know there's nobody there. But Isaiah says there are inhabitants in the land. They're just not man nor beast. We go a little further in that chapter, verse 14, he says, and you'll have to work with me as I show you how this is understood. He says, the desert creatures will meet with the wolves. The hairy goat also will cry to its kind. Yes, the night monster will settle there and will find herself a resting place. The tree snake will make its nest and lay eggs there, and it will hatch and gather them under its protection. Yes, the hawks will be gathered there, everyone with its kind. Now, at first, it sounds like he's describing a land full of animals again. But, and this is where good biblical scholarship helps guide your interpretation, you know, based on what I've already read you, there's, we've read multiple passages that say explicitly there'll be no animal, no man in that time, right? So we know Scripture can't contradict itself. So what you have to do as a student at this stage is seek for an interpretation that reconciles these two passages without allowing a contradiction. And in this case, if you look at the Hebrew words that Isaiah is using, you find your answer for the reconciliation to solve the riddle. He mentions hawks, wolves, hairy goats, night monsters, and a snake. Well, three of those animals are clearly demonic references because the words in Hebrew are referencing demons. For example, the word we have translated hairy goat, uh, literally translated it would mean demons in goat form. And it's no coincidence, by the way, that satanic worship is often centered on a symbol of a hairy goat okay so that's the the idea it's it's actually symbolic of demons and then the word translated night monster you could retranslate that in hebrew as night demon Uh, same word in hebrew and then the tree snake that's a fairly clear allusion to satan himself brooding over his demonic angels again if you had any one of these in isolation you might not have that understanding but you're not looking at it in isolation you have all of them together here and you have other scripture to tell you that you cannot interpret these to be actual literal animals So that forces you down a different path, which is consistent with the text. And I'll give you some more in a minute. Finally, wolves and hawks. The wording doesn't lead you to demons. They're not typically symbolic for demons. But in this context, you can bring them to that. And there's an interesting reference in each case where it says, "...with its kind." And that's a very odd reference if you're just talking about animals. It would mean something more if these are ways of categorizing or describing demonic powers of different kinds, perhaps hawks predators wolves and so on even as you know the new testament talks about satan as a prowling lion so these kinds of comparisons are not out of keeping with scripture and furthermore look at the description of the land itself again burning smoke rising and the like. It makes sense to come to these conclusions when you consider the geography, because Scripture does give us confirmation that that is the geography of the location of demons in the kingdom. For example, in Revelation 20, verse 1, John writes, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years threw him into the abyss, shut it, and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were complete. After these things, he must be released for a short time. So we know that during the thousand years that we enjoy with Christ, we don't have an enemy loose in the world to deceive. And it stands to reason that if he is bound, so are his demons. That's not an explicit reference, but it would make no sense to conclude otherwise. So he and his demons are held in a place called the abyss. The abyss is a physical location... It's in the center of the earth, just like hell is, literally under your feet. Not, it's not metaphorically described there in Scripture. It's always very literally described there. The directions are always down. People come up. It's under our feet. It's spoken as being in the center of the earth and at other places. So if you've ever thought of it just in some kind of you know, general sense, you, you, you missed it. It was literal. So if you dig down deep enough, you reach a place that's really hot and where God is confining. So the abyss and hell are different, but they're both down there together. The abyss is a place of confinement where God holds the especially terrible demons, those that have been especially disobedient. good example, of course, are those uh, that mated with women to precipitate the flood of Noah. Peter says they are specifically being held in chains, waiting their final judgment. So the abyss is a place in which demons who God has judged to be so wicked they can't be let free or, or allowed to roam, are being held in confinement, waiting for their day of ultimate judgment. And that's a direct comparison to hell, because hell is very much the same thing. A place of confinement for the souls of unbelievers who then await a day of final judgment. This is not their permanent home, nor is it the permanent home of of demons. But at the end of the time of, of the millennial kingdom, we hear that at the end of that thousand years, or near the end of it, the demons and the devil will be set free for a short time, They are set free so that Christ can conquer them, so that he can put his last enemy under his feet. And therefore, again, it stands to reason that the abyss must have some channel or portal on the earth which gives passageway for the devil and his demons to come up from the abyss. And Isaiah says that passageway will vent smoke and that throughout the time of the kingdom there will be smoke coming up from Edom. And Revelation confirms that detail. At the point, at about mid-trib, there's a time in which the Lord allows demons who are there in the abyss now to be released. This is during our age now, during the tribulation. So as to torment the earth. They're described as looking like scorpions in the book of Revelation, but they're demons, as John describes them. And as the abyss is opened in Revelation, in about the midpoint of that seven-year tribulation, this is what we hear described, Revelation 9.1. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. He opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. So that's the abyss being opened, described that way by both Isaiah and Revelation. So what we're saying is if you piece together the details you have, you come to see that what Revelation and Isaiah and Jeremiah have told us, and also now Ezekiel is that the location for the entrance or exit, if you will, for the abyss during the kingdom will be in the ancient area of Edom. Perhaps that's why the place must remain uninhabited, why no one may go through it or in it or out of it, why it is roped off, so to speak, and left alone. It's reserved as a home of demons or the entry point of the home of demons. Nothing else is useful there. And the initial destruction of the land, it says, takes place at the hands of the Jewish people in armed conflict. Now, that's never happened in history. So it must refer to a moment that comes out of tribulation into the kingdom, maybe at the second coming of Christ. So Edom is getting a specially reserved place in the kingdom. They are the jail of the kingdom. Finally, the fourth people is to be judged, Philistia, or the land of the Philistines, Is where we go now to finish the chapter. Verse 15, thus says the Lord God, Because the Philistines have acted in revenge and have taken vengeance with scorn of soul to destroy with everlasting enmity, therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will stretch out my hand against the Philistines and even cut off the Cherethites and destroy the remnant of the seacoast. I will execute great vengeance on them with wrathful rebukes and they will know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance on them. All right, the area of Philistia, on your map, it occupies the Mediterranean coast, but not all of the coast. The northern half of it belongs to the Sidonians and the Tyrenians, which we'll talk about. They're the ones who get much more treatment coming up. But the southern half, from basically where the port of Joppa is, that's where you saw uh, Jonah depart from. Today, it's it's still there operating as a port even today, but it's called Jaffa today. But anyway, from there down south to the bottom of what is today the Gaza Strip, That's all Philistine territory, Philistia. Philistines were originally uh, Greek descendants. They uh, they came out of Crete. They sailed across the Mediterranean from Crete, settled on the coastal plain. Eventually they had five city-states that they established on the coastal plain. They were a warring people, like Greeks were, and they drove the Israelites out of those regions, up into the Shephala hills and up into the foothills of the Judean mountains, because they were so powerful in the... The Israelites wouldn't fight back or couldn't fight back. In fact, it was the cause of the Danites leaving the land they had been given, which was largely the coastal land, and they moved up north to where Dan settled. As you know, historically, particularly in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, the Philistines and Judges, they're tormenting Israel, Saul and David in particularly, They effectively cut off Israel from sea access and from the plains, the coastal plains of Israel. So that's why the Lord says here in the Judgment, he will cut them off from the land. And that's a play on words. Because their their name, the Sherathite, that name, that's their, their historical name, that the root word of Sherathite literally means to cut off. So he's saying, I'm going to cut off the cutoffers. <laughs> and what they're being cut off for is their unrelenting scorn for the nation of Israel and their punishing battles and and desire to wipe Israel out, basically. So... The Lord promises they would go extinct, and they did. There is no record of the Philistines in history after the second century B.C., no record of them at all. The only thing that continues from that era are the names of their cities, because their cities are still in place. Even today, you can visit Gath, Ashdod, Ashkelon, they're just Jewish cities today. There's no mention of the Philistines or Philistia in the kingdom. I'll give you all one guess why Philistia does not show up as a nation in the kingdom. Because it's called Israel. Their entire land was Israel. They occupied Israel territory. That was their problem. So the Lord says he will take them out. They have no territory. They have no place in the kingdom. Now, keep in mind when we say the Philistines won't be there, there's a difference between saying somebody, some individual, who may have lived at some point in history who was a Philistine in that day, that person, as a Gentile, might have been brought into a relationship with God. They might have been a proselyte, in other words, brought into the faith as God appointed, and they would be in the kingdom. But that's not the same thing as saying Philistines will be in the kingdom. When we're talking about these these names, Philistine, Moab, and the like, we're saying there'll be a cultural group, a country with that name in the kingdom, holding that identity in the kingdom. That's not what will happen for Philistines or Edomites. What you will see, though, is a Moabite kingdom, an Ammonite or country, if you will, in the kingdom itself of people who call themselves Ammonites and Moabites. It's yet to be seen, though, whether the nation of Moabites or the nation of Ammonites in the kingdom consists of people who grew up Ammonite or Moabite in this age. That's not clear in Scripture as to whether or not that connection is necessary. So in other words, I might be placed in Moab and made a Moabite in the kingdom. Potentially, that, we don't know if that's right or not, is what I'm saying. We don't understand that piece. Moving on, the Lord says he does all these things to demonstrate, again, that he is the Lord ultimately that demonstration is going to be seen in eternity so what you're understanding in that is that under these judgments those who received mercy in that day saw the impact of the lord's work those who survived the judgments they could look back on what happened and make sense of it Uh, obviously those who suffered his judgments had no choice but to acknowledge that the lord is god if they lived through it but those who died like anyone who dies know the truth of who god is by virtue of where they find themselves when they wake up but those who receive his grace, those who who are spared, those who are saved, they see evidence of this judgment going into the kingdom. So that even in the geopolitical nature of the kingdom, we have a continuing testimony of Edom, place of burning. Moab and Ammon, reduced territory, still here, but we remember what they, what they suffered in the past. We remember who they are. Even the rising smoke of Edom reminds us of that judgment. All right. So now the question I raised earlier, what do these judgments teach The nations of our world today as it relates to treatment of israel well you have a a range of behaviors represented even in just these first four from contempt to glee over their destruction to uh, an overt effort to destroy them to taking advantage of their misery i i think it's easy sometimes to imagine that You're pro-Israel simply because you're not Arab and you want to see them destroyed. But there's a wide range of reactions to Israel between those two extremes. And we fall into some of them sometimes without even thinking about it. So the Lord takes note of how any group of Gentiles approaches God's people. And certain nations in Scripture, as we've read, have been singled out because of their historical relationship to Israel. But in light of what he said to Abraham, that is, those who bless you I will bless, those who curse you I will curse, it would make sense for us to conclude that that same principle is always at work, even on an individual level. That is, those who respect Israel, those who mourn when she mourns, those who rejoice when she rejoices, are pleasing God's heart. And to respond otherwise to the plight of the Jewish people risks incurring God's displeasure. Now, at the same time, as I say that, it's important to understand and recognize there's a difference between biblical Israel and the current political state of Israel. That is, biblically speaking, the nation of Israel is all Jews who live wherever they live, whether in this country or in any other. That's the nation of Israel. Some are in their land, some are not. Roughly right now, it's about 50-50, as I understand. So maybe half or less than half are actually in their land right now, and the rest are outside their land, but they're all the nation of Israel. And... By the same token, so you have the ones living in the modern political state, which are Israel, but then by the same token, the modern political state does not by itself define what supporting Jewish people means. Supporting God's Israel does not necessarily mean supporting every political decision that those who govern the state might make on a given day. Right? That's a different question. And that would be particularly true if, for example, they entered into some political compromise to return Jewish land to Arabs that might be the political decision of the state of israel that would not be in keeping with the biblical mindset of israel in scripture that is that israel's land is not free to be given away that's not in their power Uh, so we know the lord will eventually bring all israel into her land we said that earlier and we're in a process now i think when we see that taking place eventually all of them get there all those who are destined to be there Uh, and as that happens god will give israel what he's promised them but in the meantime, what he asks of the world, not just of believers, by the way, that, that, that promised Abraham did not specify, I'm going to only hold believers accountable to this. He says, to the people of earth, those who bless you receive one thing, those who curse you receive a different thing. Uh, it's in this meantime that we have to have solidarity with the Jewish people in the same way that Rahab comforted the spies, or that Ruth attached herself to the fortunes of the Jewish people Uh, forsaking her own heritage. It's not in the sense that we have to be political cheerleaders for the nation as it exists in its current political state. It's that Jewish people we see in San Antonio have to see that same allegiance and care and concern that we think about when we think about supporting the Jewish state back in the Middle East. So, as Christians, we have no condemnation. So, there is not a risk here of judgment in the sense of what we saw happen to these other nations. But you still have your your testimony at risk, and you still have then to consider the treatment of Jewish people as a part of that testimony. I think most, if not all, Christians develop and naturally by the Spirit's work a love for their for the Jewish nation in their heart, at least in some sense. Not necessarily in all cases, but I think that's a general trend. But he will make those who oppose his people a testimony, one way or another. So he wants the world to know, as he said repeatedly here, the one true God is the God of Israel. And the way he has asked for that to be shown is that we would remember the special place Israel has. Remember he said even to the Edomites, they should have known that their brother needed their help and they didn't show him compassion. So our testimonies have to be that Jewish people are set apart even though they're not believing in a way that lets us honor them above all other people, whether that's here or in their home country. And ultimately, the best way to honor God in that is to bring them the gospel. But even if they should not come to that with your help, you don't treat them lesser because of that. That there's a, there's a point in Scripture of just supporting the people generally as a way of honoring God that doesn't turn on their individual relationship with God or your relationship to them. That's an important thing to remember. All right, let's go to prayer and then we'll do Q&A. The Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for our time in the Word, a reminder of the importance of your people Israel and for the revelation you've given us in Scripture about the days to come in the kingdom. We've just begun, Father, and, and just be touched a little bit on what you have for us in this book about what's coming. But already, Father, it whets our appetite to hear more of what's coming and what our our world will be like in a, in a day soon to come. For as we know, Father, from Scripture that the more real the kingdom becomes to us, the less real this world is. And that's a good thing. So, Father, keep us studying. Bring us back in due time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.